0: So, Katie, I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but when you were up on the International Space Station, what was your favorite view of Earth?
1: Ooh. I I loved actually going up there when I hadn't seen the map. I mean, it was really busy. We had a lot of work to do and you'd see the map and you'd see where the station was and you'd want to just like fly up to the cupola and go look out the window. But there were some days I would just go, I am not looking at the map as I go, not looking, not looking. But so then you would actually... And and when you
0: talk about the map, you actually have a map that shows you where you are
1: over the air. On every, the world map. And, and it'll actually okay. show just like that kind of like mission control diagram. It shows where the station is. It shows what mm-hmm. you're passing over. Mm-hmm. And it's on every computer. So you can always know. But sometimes I was really just trying to, you know, focus, focus and keep my nose down, get this work done. And I'd say, I'm not looking at the, at the world map today as I go by, but I would end up in the cupola. And now you have no idea where in the world you are. Right. And you look down and often you can tell just by the sort of texture or feel. Like everything in South America, when there's that mountains, there's just going to be sort of like, they're just a different texture. They're kind of more craggy and sharp. And there's just a feel like you don't even have to recognize, you just kind of know where you are.
0: Right, right. So then back to the original question, what was your favorite view?
1: So my favorite view is, of course, home, you know, where my family lived. And I could see this big reservoir outside of Boston, the Quabbin. Mm -hmm. And so you could see like the very unmistakable Cape Cod shape of like yep. a, almost like a scorpion tail there. And so you can always recognize it. I was very happy that it was from someplace really easy to recognize. And in fact, the first time on my very first shuttle mission, a guy on that mission, Al Sacco, we were both from Massachusetts and we both saw Massachusetts in the daytime at mm-hmm. the same time together. And he looks down and goes, oh my gosh, it looks just like the map, <laughs> which is just really my favorite. I mean, I tell this story all the time because it's just you like... It's pretty amazing that what we see looks like the map.
0: Yes, but also I, I love the fact that, that you're drawn to home, home on Earth in that way. That, that's actually quite sweet.
1: So, you know, we're making this episode two weeks before the Artemis launch is scheduled for Yeah, November so, so the
0: infamous Artemis launch. And, and we should tell our listeners that for this whole series, we've been on the cusp of the Artemis launch, and we're hoping that it's actually going to happen now.
1: Well Artemis is the sister of Apollo, okay? Yes. Um and we had the Apollo program going to the moon. This is going back to the moon. Yes. It's going to launch from Florida. It is going to go to the moon, past the moon by 30,000 miles or so, and then back to Earth. It's going to take it like 30 days. This is a test launch to understand is it going to be safe for or have we made it safe enough for people?
0: And if everything goes according to plan, by the time this episode airs, we will have launched
1: Realizing that the next launch will have people on it. And and you can't have the people on it until you do this first test launch. And when the first woman and the first person of color walk on the moon, life will never be the same again.
0: And that's a beautiful segue into this week's episode.
1: I'm Katie Coleman.
0: I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. And appropriately on today's show, we're asking, how will we govern the moon once we get there? We are going to a brand new place where people have never lived before and actually we have the opportunity to create something brand new in terms of how we govern society there
1: you know that's where it's going to be some really frank conversations between people who come from different parts of the earth have different cultural values but we have to have them and we have to have them together
0: so interestingly this week's obsession from me actually Touches on this, but before we get to that, Katie, what have you been obsessing about this week? Donuts. Donuts. Tell me more.
1: Well, I'm. I'm probably Actually, no, no. Of-
0: we've got to. We've got to start <laughs> off. Okay, so there aren't just donuts. There are all sorts of donuts. Are we talking about apple cider donuts? Are we talking about donuts with holes in the middle? Are we talking about filled donuts? What sort of donuts?
1: Well, in this case, it is closer to home. It is about the daylight savings time donut in arizona did you know about this
0: no i well i know about daylight savings but i have no idea about the donut
1: well i know because i work in both places that this time of year when the time changes i have to be really careful that i'm on the right showing up for class at the right time yes. in arizona right and so it, it turns out it's because arizona doesn't do daylight savings time i know right?
0: because we're sensible that the one thing that we're sensible about
1: Well, and and I know the world is going that way, and that's why we have to talk about this thing that I just thought was so wild, which is that up in the corner of Arizona, the Navajo Nation does do daylight savings time. So there's a circle-sized shape there, the region of the Navajo Nation, but within that region, the Hopi Nation does not observe daylight savings time. So on the map, if you were to look at the map of daylight savings time, there is a donut In the Uh. corner of Arizona.
0: (laughs) I love that. I I didn't know this at all. Okay, I've got it straight after this. I'm going to have to get that map out and map out daylight savings in Arizona and see the donut. Andrew, let's have it. So periodically, I scour Google Scholar for unusual and weird articles about space explorations. And I came across one this last week that really made me smile. So this is the title of it. This is a paper that is titled Ancient Papyrus Scroll Inspired Self-Deployable Mechanism Based on Shape Memory Polymer Composites for Mars Explorations.
1: I love this. It has like so, all these words that are like special to polymer know what the, word. I'm a polymer chemist, remember? Would you
0: would you like to know what the paper was really about? It was published by a group of Chinese scientists. Okay. And it's about a technology to create a self-unfurling Chinese flag on Mars. So the idea <laughs> is that using this technology so that when they plant the Chinese flag, it unfurls and you actually see it on display. So that's where the the, the memory polymer composites Coming. So, oh, this is this is so good. I, this is such a smoke and mirrors title for something which is about planting a flag on Mars.
1: That is so fascinating, and, and I guess I'm going to focus on the fact that when you figure that out, there's a lot of things that you're going to want to like inflate, unfurl. Think about you know medically when you've got some device that you want to then take a certain shape inside the body, right? You know, maybe it's an implant, maybe it's a stint. I always hope that basically if it only involves one nation, it has applications all around the
0: earth. You you are such a good person, Katie. So I, I talk about Chinese flags and you immediately go to how this can improve society the world over. Perfect. I'm
1: just trying to, you know, niggle the people that might think of those actual ideas.
0: And of course, for all we know, they're also planning one of these self unfurling flags for the Moon as well, which is a beautiful segue into this week's episode. Thus far, the United States is the only country to have successfully landed humans on the Moon. But that is about to change. We mentioned the Artemis 1 mission earlier. With subsequent Artemis missions, we'll see humans returning to the lunar surface within the next few years.
1: And this time it won't just be NASA or the United States up there. Several other space agencies from Europe, Canada, Japan are also part of Artemis. And China has its own lunar program. And of course, you know, there's private companies that will go to the moon as well and establish new commercial activities.
0: With so many players on the lunar surface, how will we govern on the moon? How will we prevent or manage conflict between the various players? And how do we preserve the moon as our planet's only natural satellite, the shared heritage of all humankind?
1: To get answers, we spoke with Alex MacDonald. Alex is the chief economist of NASA. He's the author and editor of a number of NASA reports about future space development, and he was the founding program executive of NASA's Emerging Space Office.
0: Now, I want to note that we recorded this conversation back at the end of September. A month later, just a few days ago, NASA's Office of Technology Policy and Strategy released a study called Lunar Landing and Operations Policy Analysis. Oh, I love their names. And this looks at policy considerations around landing and operations sites on the Moon's surface. We'll include a link to that study in the show notes. Alex McDonald, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here with you. When humans last walked on the moon in 1972 with NASA's Apollo 17, it was just one country, the United States. Now, 50 years later, we're going back. This time, it's not just the US. NASA's Artemis program is a partnership with several countries, China has its own lunar program and has already landed uncrewed missions on the lunar surface and returned with samples. So this is a new space age of cooperation and competition with multiple nations and private companies. And of course, this time we're not just looking to go there, we're looking to stay there. So how does this change things? How are the challenges different now than they were with the first Apollo program?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it is a really exciting time uh, in the space industry. You know, certainly as Katie knows, we've been trying to return to the moon now for literally decades. One of the things that I think is quite different is that because we're going to have to uh, learn how to stay on the lunar surface for extended periods of time. You know, we may not be living there, you know, with families for for quite some time, but we're hoping to to be there for for weeks, months at a time, not dissimilar to some of the research stations in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Because we're going to have to be thinking about that type of timescale with a mix of private actors and different nations all at the table and potentially all using the same facilities, we're... Going to have to think through uh, what are the rights and responsibilities of the different actors, and, and in the Apollo program, we didn't really have to think those things right. through to the same extent, right?
0: I, I did, uh, yeah. I was going to say, it strikes me that that with Apollo, yes, there were lots of different actors sort of in space, but they were somewhat isolated. But certainly, as you say, it seems like when people are actually living there, that level of interdependency must be massively different.
2: Right. And and just briefly, you know, it's important to keep in mind the time scale of lunar surface durations. The very first mission of the surface Apollo 11, uh, astronauts were on the surface for less than 24 hours. By, you know, 72, we'd gotten up to the impressive time span of about a week on the lunar surface. Right? right? We're now talking about trying to get up to about 30 days on the lunar surface. And the reason we're trying to get up to that level of duration on lunar surface is because we think that when we go to Mars for a short period of time, that's roughly around the time that we would be having on the Martian surface for a short stay uh, mission to Mars. So we're, we're really trying to practice deep space operations in preparation for Mars at the lunar surface. But, you know, if you think about being on the lunar surface for 30 days, you know, you start to see the potential that multiple parties may be on the lunar surface for, for overlapping periods of time. And that's going to really require coordination in a way that we've never had to before.
1: I would like you to tell me how Artemis got chosen as the name for this program and the Um, part you played in it. I I know that, you know, it's not like you decided, but I, you know, I I do know that you were part of it and I love the part you played. So I want you to tell about it.
2: I was very privileged to to serve uh, in the office of the administrator. And in the 2019 timeframe, there was a conversation in the kitchenette. (laughs) in uh, the office of the administrator between myself and Jim Bridenstine and and Tom Kremens. And we were trying to think about, you know, what are we going to be calling, right, the astronaut crew that is going to be part of whatever this, as the time, uh, unnamed lunar program. And you had these cadre of astronauts that that had really significant cultural impact and, and the names had significant cultural impact. And we were we were throwing around the different options. And, you know, I basically kind of said, well, you know, we could always just uh, go back to uh, the classic name, which is Artemis, because, of course, Apollo had a twin sister, Artemis. And uh, I knew that because my father was a big classicist, and he used to be able to recite to me the plot lines of the Iliad and the Odyssey, essentially from memory, as kind of bedtime stories. But, but the classical narratives, I think, really do resonate. And so you know, not too long after that that Kitchenette conversation, Jim uh, announced the name. And it's kind of one of those ones that was just uh, it was very obvious, right? Once you kind of think about what we're trying to do and the continuity, but also the change that this particular return of the Moon represents.
1: And that's why I think it's so special and actually so important that we're figuring out, hopefully, who's doing what together. So do you want to start with the Artemis Accords? Like, what are they and what, why do they matter?
2: Yeah, so the Artemis Accords is really agreement between now a very significant number of nations. In fact, we, we have a new signatory, it seems almost every couple of weeks or every month. So we're at around 20 countries or so that have signed an agreement to essentially not just kind of abide by the Outer Space Treaty, but to be uh, committed in perpetuity to the peaceful uh, uses of the lunar surface to the exploration of lunar surface in a cooperative and peaceful manner and to figure out how over time we're going to be developing our presence on the lunar surface. And this is kind of a first step, right? I think it's important to note that this is not the this is not the be all and end all of agreements between countries related to lunar exploration because of course there are also international multilateral treaties that have also been signed related two lunar activities, in particular the the Moon Agreement, which the U.S. is not a party to, but many countries around the world are. And in fact, a couple of countries, notably Australia and Saudi Arabia, are parties to both the Moon Agreement and the Artemis Accords. So how
0: how do the two How do the two differ then, Alex? Can you just give us the really quick 30-second version of the Moon Agreement? Right.
2: Well, the the 30-second version of the Moon Agreement was that in the 70s and early 80s, through the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, a number of nations, in fact, led by the US at the time, agreed on essentially a treaty for operating the lunar surface and the criteria by which uh, any profitable activities would be managed in a multilateral international manner. The Artemis Accords are really a a much simpler agreement between nation states to really abide by the Outer Space Treaty when we return to the moon and to continue to coordinate activities on the lunar surface in a bilateral manner, effectively. So the Outer Space Treaty is actually a very interesting document. It was really led by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And its primary purpose was to ensure that nuclear weapons were not going to be placed in orbit, because in the 1960s, this was a significant security concern, uh, obviously the U.S. had, but it was a a really significant international security concern. But while that was being negotiated, um, Lyndon Baines Johnson actually advocated through his staff that include these really interesting provisions, such as that there would be no national appropriation of territory on celestial bodies. And I actually went to the Johnson Presidential Library to kind of look at the negotiating notes from his team to see if they really uh, kind of knew what a revolutionary principle that was. And it's quite interesting that when you, when you look at some of the speeches that Johnson gave at the time, they were quite aware. They knew that this was very different than, than how nation states and, and, frankly, even how economics works terrestrially. And Johnson kind of took that action basically because he, he believed that a different type of socioeconomic organization was or at least should pertain in space than it did on Earth. And, you know, that is a, an idea that um, we have maintained to this day. But as with all ideas, you know, it
0: continues to be challenged and, and we will see where we go in the future. Right. So. Alex, can you talk a little bit about how that pertains to resource extraction? Because the way you described it suggests that actually nobody is allowed to commercialize the moon, but it's not quite that simple, is it?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. What economic activity can you not do on the moon because of the Outer Space Treaty? And, and the interesting answer is there's very little. In fact, the only thing that I would argue you can't do is engage in property speculation because you're not able to define property rights independent of use. So you are able right now under US law and the laws of many other countries to own what you extract from the lunar surface. If you are able to extract material from the lunar surface, US law, the Space Act of 2015 establishes that you can own that. And in fact, you know, when you think about what we did with the lunar samples, there's no question. When we brought back uh, the many, many rocks from the lunar surface, there was no question that those were the property of the U.S. government when we brought them back. And, and to take it further, right, there's nothing that stops anyone from landing a habitat on the lunar surface, landing people near that habitat, and, and even charging people for the privilege of using that habitat if they are able to do it. So there's really actually almost no activity, again, other than property speculation, that you can't already do under the outer space treaty. And I think that's really valuable and, and underappreciated, actually. You know, I, I think it's actually a really important principle that there is a pretty equal access, actually internationally, to the surface of the moon. And, and what you're not able to do under the outer space treaty is to define some area and say that you you can't come here. The principle of, of open access to the lunar surfaces is a really core principle of the outer space treaty.
1: So does that mean that when you're taking your hiatus and you're back on Earth and nobody's mining your site on the moon, that they can come in and mine there the same place?
2: Uh, so it depends on, I think, how, right? So you have a, a due regard to not cause harm to other people's equipment. So you can't kind of come in and, and you know remove or destroy someone else's equipment. But if you are, are mining... 50 meters away, some reasonable amount that that you can say does not cause damage and doesn't cause damage. Um, The principle of free access means that everyone has equal access to that. Now, under under things like the Moon Agreement, the argument was that once you get to the point where there are so many people doing this, and and it's important to note we are not near that point yet, once you're at the point where there are so many people doing that, then some sort of international coordination will be required to manage that and to coordinate it. And that seems not crazy to me. When we get to that point, I think those types of conversations will start in a real way. But I think right now, it's a fairly open environment, right? And I think right now, if you if you think you can actually make a profit by going to lunar surface and mining, the current international regime
0: allows you to do it. Of course, it does raise the question of, how is any of this enforced? Is this just an agreement between good people and good nations, which sounds like a weird sort of concept?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting question, but I mean, in, in principle, the entire United Nations global structure is an agreement between nations, right? And right. we've seen you know, how fragile that can be, but we've also seen how powerful that can be as a structure to, you know, incentivize and 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 create a, a stable and peaceful world.
0: Although, uh, having said so, um, if you look at two of the big space players, Russia and China, they have not signed up to the Accords. So what happens if, say, China says, we're going to start extracting resources from the moon? We're not going to play by your rules.
2: So that's where I think it's important to, to make that distinction between the multilateral agreements like the Outer Space Treaty and these types of more multi-party but bilaterally negotiated agreements like the Artemis Accords. China and Russia are both parties to the Outer Space Treaty. Right. And... I suspect that anyone who has interests in a stable operating environment um, for their science activities and even potentially for their commercial activities are going to want to create global shared rules and norms. That's a challenging process. You know, The, the 1960s weren't exactly a, a relaxed Kumbaya time either, and yet people were able to, to go to the United Nations and have these difficult discussions with, with parties that they may felt they, sh- they shared some of the values with and others that they may feel they did not. And, and yet we, we, we got these really important treaties out of that. And so I think there's a ways to go. And, and I'm a firm believer personally that at the end of the day, unless we get to true multilaterally agreed upon agreements through the United Nations between all relevant parties – we're, we're not really going to be living up to the moment of establishing a, a paradigm for, for peaceful cooperation and, and action here.
0: Katie, you've talked about this in the context of the International Space Station, where the degree of collaboration there is clearly very important to that community. Um, to what extent do you see parallels with what we've already done in space here?
1: Well, the parallel that I'm hoping for, because I think it's the one that really carries us through, you know, difficult times, is that People are focused on the same mission, and why the mission is imperative. And so, Alex, I'm wondering, how do we establish that, and what are the next steps that you could see? If you could, if you could just wave a wand and make them happen, what would happen? What interchange would you see between China, Russia, and some of the other countries, including us?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a big question, Katie. We're going
1: to blame you if it doesn't work. Okay. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, rather than, than give you specifics, I think what I'd like to do is actually kind of talk about this this general principle that I think is, is an important one um, that we actually debate, and that is the principle that we humans should act differently in space than we have historically here on Earth. And that's obviously a debatable proposition because you can make an argument that says, well, no 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 humans are always going to be the same everywhere they go they're going to continue to do all the usual human things to each other against each other etc but what's amazing to me and one of the reasons that i really do still draw inspiration from the exploration of space is that we have maintained an idea that by going into space we might yet become better versions of ourselves ourselves individually ourselves overall as a species And the Outer Space Treaty is really one of the best examples of that. And I would argue the International Space Station is one of the most practical examples of that. And, you know, I think that spirit is an important uh, one to keep alive because we're not guaranteed it, right? And so I think ensuring that we remember that in the grand scheme of the cosmos, we're all the same humans, no matter where we're born, no matter what time we're born. And that means that that we have a lot of the same aspirations and desires. And one of those desires is a desire to explore the cosmos, to learn as much as we can from it, to maybe move out there someday, to find new homes even someday in the far distant future. Uh, And that is not an idea that is held by any one country. It's an idea that has found remarkable resonance across cultures and across time. And if I think we remember that, we stand a chance to build the partnerships and Infrastructure and global agreements that can allow all of us to to achieve that. But uh, whether or not we do is frankly uh, up to the actions of all of us and and many of you listening to see whether or not we actually make that future come to pass, or we realize a different, perhaps less enjoyable future.
0: So I love that, and I I, I love the optimism. But the reality is that we're right on the cusp of commercial entities big corporations getting a, a foothold in space, which is something that we haven't seen in the past, how optimistic are you that they will also embrace this vision?
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question. The way that I think about it is that at the end of the day, the desire to go into space is not a desire that is held by a nation state. The desire to go into space is frankly often a very individual idea, and that idea can be embodied through different types of social organization, but you know, for whatever reason, and Katie doesn't have to tell us exactly why, she desired to go into space, and and I have a similar desire, right, for my own <laughs> my own psychological reasons, however interesting they may be. And so, I don't think you can stop private individuals from exploring the cosmos in the same way we can't and shouldn't, you know, stop. Private individuals from uh, going to a national park and you know exploring the Sierra Nevadas. At the same time, we do have to establish some sense of social contract about what responsibilities we all have to each other when we do that. But we're in such an early phase of all this that right now it's hard to really know what that would be. So I think Andrew. I think you're right to kind of raise that as a potential concern, right? I, I don't think it's something that we should, we should gloss over. But right now, the number of people we have exploring and living on the surface of another planetary body is still zero. Right. And I would like to see us get up to, you know, a good half dozen or dozens, um, and then evaluate how that's going, right? And But while we're trying to get up to that level of development, I think it's important to remember at least some of the ideals that got us here in the first place.
1: I think that the key is when you, when you say words like human, humans, meaning like individual humans and individuals. One of your phrases, uh, Alex, where you said something like, you know, we haven't always been the best humans together in space. I would actually disagree in that when it is human to human. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's seamless.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and actually, I think in space, we actually have been often better versions of ourselves. And one of my favorite programs is the Apollo Soyuz program. It's still one of the kind of great moments from the Cold War where humans were able to shake hands in space and thereby communicate, you know, even with all of the challenges between the nations at the time, the just straight human potential of, of one human shaking hands with another while orbiting the Earth at thousands of kilometers
0: uh, an hour. So if you were to really speculate and think about what the moon looks like 20 years from now what are your hopes for me what i hope is that we have perhaps
2: multiple research stations where people are living for months at a time maybe we've gotten to the point where you know one of these stations is continuously inhabited perhaps most importantly though i hope that we have one global agreed upon set of rules of the road and practices, that we don't have a bifurcation, that we don't have, you know, quote unquote, two systems on the moon or, or more. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a lot of diversity and variability about the different types of actors who are there, right? I, I, would, I would be very encouraged to see um, multiple different, you know, groups of nations and maybe some private sector research stations in that group. But I hope that they all agree on the same codes of behavior, on the same laws. I think that's the future that I'd like to see in 20 years or so.
1: I like that idea, that optimism, that maybe we could be our better selves. You know, there's something compelling about space that really makes us feel that way. And, and I see it in Antarctica. I was there in 2002. And when you would walk outside your dorm room and think about throwing away anything, there, there'd be 12 bins for recycling, A ballpoint pen was actually the hardest thing. Is this construction material? Is it plastic? Is it this? Is it that? And you would spend time figuring that out because it was what is done there. And that was a dozen years ago. Because you you look outside and you just realize, I mean, first of all, everything's white. So everything that you put there, you're going to see. And I think that we'll feel that way on the moon. And so that kind of mission and sort of imperative nature of this is a special place. We're all here together hopefully will will carry people to do what you what you talked about
2: yeah and and i think it's important to remember that 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 only happens if the people who undertake these missions and these voyages choose to believe that there is no guarantee that that's what we end up with, right? And so, for those of us who do work on the problem, I think it is important for us to think about the values that we want to live out on the lunar
0: surface as, as elsewhere. Alex, I, this has just been a, a crazy optimistic conversation, more optimistic than I'm used to, to be honest. <laughs> but there have, there have got to be some big challenges here. So, in all of your optimism, what are the really big things that you think that we've got to grapple with? What keeps you awake at night here?
2: Yeah, it's a great, honest question, Andrew. And and I'll try to be as honest as I can. I, I'm i worried about the increasing militarization of space. And there's clearly been significant new developments around the world related to space military capabilities. And these, these things have the potential to to not just create a, a almost insurmountable orbital debris problem, but but more to the point, they may be spurs to, to really serious military conflict here on Earth. And I think that's something to be, to be worried about. Um, and I think that's really why right now the US, along with Canada and New Zealand have taken a a rather important and extraordinary step, which is to essentially pledge to not do tests of anti-satellite weapons. This has come out recently. This has been a, a recent announcement by the Biden administration. And I think it's a recognition that we really want to avoid a very significant arms race in space. And we've had at least one already, right? And so it's not like it's something that is impossible. But if we see space writ large become a ground on which battles are fought, I think that we as a spacefaring community will have failed the world. And that is also a possible future. And so it's one reason why I I think it's important to talk about these values that we hope for in space, because if we don't, we may very easily find ourselves repeating some of the greatest sins of humanity in this new domain.
1: Alex McDonald, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us, sharing, you know, your optimism and also really some of the things that are going to be hard for all of us as we look towards a future on the moon. You have sealed your fate in that we have to have you back. to discuss some of these, I mean, these are hard things and we're happy to have you translating and helping us understand how they evolve and how they could evolve. Thanks very much.
2: Well, thanks, Katie. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure chatting
1: with you. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space.
0: But we can share what space sounds like.
1: This is Sounds of Space.
0: Okay, KD, what do you think that was?
1: Well, I had two immediate thoughts. Mm -hmm. One was that our music designer, Mario Iniguez, is either wildly excited because we we put the wrong tape in and that's something really beautiful that he wrote Mm -hmm. or he's actually really disappointed because he's finding out that the universe is making all these sounds and (laughs) you know people aren't we're not going to need musicians composing anymore
0: Um, yeah i think you know you're skipping the question I, i i love that any ideas what it actually might be beyond the universe trying to up the ante i'm
1: thinking andrew there's such a range of tones and sounds and yeah. where they appear. I mean, it was actually really just quite appealing. And it's the kind of music I'd like to have playing when I get I to know. Yeah, do so a, like actually, an ARVR kind of thing and sort of just decide to be present, right?
0: So so you're actually beginning to get there in terms of that that sort of complexity of sound and, and layering. So that was, believe it or not, the sound of our moon's history. Data from instruments on board NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has enabled scientists to identify the age of major craters on the Moon's surface. And what you heard represents that last billion years of lunar history. The individual tones indicate the impacts that produced these craters. Large craters are represented by louder, deeper tones. The sustained bass drone in the background represents the elevation of various points on the entire lunar surface. I think we've used this analogy before, but imagine a record needle spiraling down and around the surface of the moon from pole to pole, going from top to bottom, and you'll get the idea. This sonification comes to us, again, courtesy of the amazing folks at System Sounds. And I think they've got to bring out their own album. This was a real doozy. That was the history of the moon.
1: That is amazing. I mean, so it's literally like you're seeing the topography in a completely different You, you are, but over way. time.
0: And I, so what I, what I love about this and what you began to capture is the complexity of it. So it starts out sort of slow and ominously. And then you get this layering as the, the surface of the moon and the history of the moon get increasingly complex. It's actually, from a musical perspective, it's really quite a deep piece.
1: It was, I mean that is a beautiful thing. And and especially when you think about trying to perceive things through different senses and thinking about our friends at Astro Access, where one of the ambassadors is actually in charge of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. I wonder if he knows about the sonification.
0: We'll have to let him know. Let's listen to that again. That's it for this episode, and that's a wrap for season three of Mission Interplanetary. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Andrew, I don't want it to be done.
0: I know. This has been (laughs) such a great series, and I was actually looking back across all of our guests. I think we enable people to tell the stories about the future of humans in space that you don't hear anywhere else.
1: And by definition, they are the stories for all of us. So if you haven't already done so, go subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. It really helps us. And write to us from you on know, our, our website, missioninterplanetary.com. We'd love to hear your questions, your suggestions for your future guests. Hint, hint. Season four coming up. And, you know, topics that you'd like us to address. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU. And please recommend us to your friends. That would be...
0: Awesome. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen. Our intern is Mason Miller, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez.
1: Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll
0: be taking a bit of time off, but stay tuned for Season 4 coming up in 2023.
1: And in the meantime, be on the lookout for upcoming bonus content.
0: We'll be back before you know it, asking the big questions about space exploration.
1: The future is interplanetary. We'll see you
0: there.